Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We're available online at radionorthland.org where you can listen to us live and you can listen to past episodes of Wrestling Memories Then and Now. Hi, I'm Glenn Broggett, sitting uh, all by myself this week. The Grizzle Vet Mike McCurdy is uh, on assignment. Yes, uh, he'll be back here uh, in upcoming editions of the show in the month of December. But anyway, I have a, a very special guest while Mike's away, and uh, it's kind of, uh, you know, Mike does these profiles of uh, some indie companies down in uh, Texas where he lives. So I want to take it upon myself to uh, not just cover an, an indie company per se, but one of the guys who I remember his pro wrestling story following him uh, in the Grand Forks Herald, I guess, because this is a, a guy that kind of has ties to the wrestling memories uh, listening area beyond. This is before we go uh, into the Internet and beyond. This is our, 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 our radio listening area. Yes, uh, Grand Forks is very much a part of uh, Pioneer 90.1. But anyway, I remember this guy when he uh, started pro wrestling, his uh, his pro wrestling journey. I remember him when he came back to Grand Forks, to the Grand Cities area for a big show, almost his homecoming of sorts in the late 80s, early 90s. And I remember also uh, hearing about some of his work on the Minnesota Indies for Pro Wrestling America with Eddie Sharkey's company. Uh, uh, some of the stuff he did outside of uh, Minnesota in the Midwest and beyond he's got an interesting story to tell and we'll, we'll find out what he's been uh, up to uh, outside of pro wrestling and we're going to have to get a, a at least one story of his time that he worked for herb abrams uwf it's a, a big uh, pleasure uh, and it's wonderful to have him on the program the judge mr randy gust welcome to wrestling memories oh thank you thank you so much for having me um this is a blast from the past i, I mean <laughs> my wrestling days uh been a little bit behind me but uh they're still uh, i mean it was one of the best parts of my life in the in the business of pro wrestling and uh you know it's just fun to fun to talk about it because i haven't talked about my pro wrestling days for a long long time so um you know it's uh uh thank you for having me and uh and uh uh, it'll be fun talking about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's a, oh, wonderful to have you on. Like I said, man, I remember the announcement that you had gone and become a professional wrestler in the Grand Forks Herald Sports Section. How's that for a blast from the past? <laughs> That's a that wow. That had to be that had to be close to thirty years ago. Uh, yeah, wow. That is a blast from the past. Yes. Oh man, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, your life uh, before pro wrestling. I want to talk about when you were younger. What what drew you to pro wrestling, and, and where you know what what was it that that that, that bit you as far as the, the pro wrestling bug? But let's talk about your the early pre Randy Gusto days. You know, honestly, with the in the rest, the, when I was a young kid, I was always I loved two things. I loved watching the Minnesota Vikings in the seventies, and I loved watching AWA pro wrestling Vern Gagne. And I had always, I mean, those were the two passions I had. And I loved pro wrestling. And, um, you know, I'd watch it either every Saturday night or Sunday morning, whenever it was on. You know, we didn't have cable. Because actually, I mean, I grew up, honestly, I grew up in Chirac, Minnesota, which is only like 40 miles from Thief River Falls down Highway 21. That's where my brother still lives in the farmhouse right there. But, I mean, we had three channels, and wrestling was on one of them. And uh, I would watch it when it was on, and uh, I always wanted to do it, but I never thought, you know, you know, that, you know, realistically I probably wouldn't. But it all started because I had a real good amateur career. <laughs> and uh, I went to the University of North Dakota and was pretty successful in the heavyweight division there. And Vern Gagne, Vern Gagne, because of an amateur himself, national champ from Minnesota, he liked amateur wrestlers. So, I mean... When my career was done at the University of North Dakota, I was the one that called him, him and Brad Rangans, and uh, I wanted to see if I could get into it. They got back to me, and from there, I basically, that, that's how it all started because of my career at the University of North Dakota wrestling and my amateur background because Vernon Brad, Brad being a you know Olympic Greco wrestler, you know, uh, one of the best in the world, that's where it all started for me and how I got into it. My trainers, when I was in camp, it was mainly, Vern would come and visit, you know, about once a week or so. But it was it was Brad Rangans. He had a place in Hamill, Minnesota with a big uh, workout shed where they had a ring, they had an Olympic mat, they had weights, 
they had a big log. I mean, they had all that stuff. And, uh, and, uh, we would be training. And actually the assistant trainer at the time, if you know, was, was, um, Wayne Bloom. Wayne Bloom was the assistant trainer, you know, who was Wayne the train Bloom. And then went on to be one of the Beverly brothers in, uh, in the WWE and down in WCW he worked there too. But yeah, that's where it started with Brad. Brad was the one, it was called Worldwide Professional School of Wrestling. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the training because I mean, you you had obviously uh, you you were an athlete, uh, you were a, a college uh, wrestler. But what was the differences as far as uh, conditioning went and, and training went? Uh, but, you know, when you got into the world of amateur wrestling to the world of pro wrestling, what was what was the some of the differences and maybe even some of the similarities as far as getting yourself conditioned and, and ring ready? Well, I think the biggest things because. You know, pro wrestling, you know what I mean? It is, and I mean enough people know it now, is entertainment. So what I had to get my, myself adjusted to from being an amateur wrestler was the slower pace in the ring, um, the tie-ups, and I mean, and, you know, just getting the timing. Because everything for me in amateur was go, go, go. You know, but here it was a little, and there was times you had to maybe, rest, Brad would have us in the ring wrestling for an hour at a time. You know, the one thing that was real similar is, from amateur to pro was your conditioning. If you weren't in in in, uh, in in shape, ring shape or mat shape, you were going to get thrown. You know, you were going to get real tired real fast, and then everything would usually go haywire from there. Because once you're tired, you know, physically you're tired, mentally, and everything else goes. It goes from there. So this, you know, some of the similarities was the conditioning and that stuff. Differences, you know, was just the pace and everything. Um, you know, and there's some strong, strong guys in in professional wrestling. I went to camp. In my camp, there was only like four or five of us, but one of them was Scott Scott Norton, Scott Flash Norton. And this man had a little under a 700-pound bench press and was a world arm wrestling champ. And I, uh, I'd work out with him, and I'd have better chance moving an oak tree than him, honest to God. I mean, people would just come in because Brad was so respected. Guys would come in like the Road Warriors, Joe and Mike, you know, Animal and Hawk, they'd come in and visit and see how, see how we were doing. Kurt Henning would be in there. And it, was, and it was not uncommon that they'd come quite a bit, you know, just to see how things were going, if they could help out. And, you know, that was kind of neat, you know, because I'd never met those guys before. So, I mean, that was my camp, and it went for about, I think I started in February and uh, went till about May. So it was a tough, tough camp, you know. There were people that got hurt and quit. So you, how how was that though? You, so you remained unscathed from the camp. Now let's talk about getting into the ring and for the first time for an actual pro wrestling match in front of an audience. Uh, can you take us back in and how the the wheels in motion? Put the wheels in motion and describe that first match and how everything kind of came together for you. I think the first match for me and I'm was in I believe it was in Winnipeg or somewhere. And it was again, and I'm not sure who it was against, but what it ended up being was a, in the business of Broadway. And if you know what a Broadway is, it's a time, it's just a time limit match for like a half hour. And it was some, I can't remember who I wrestled, but it was some contender from Canada. And it was in somewhere outside of Winnipeg. But what I learned was that, you know, you just gotta, in the ring, you got, it's so much about timing, it's so much about the right movements at the right time. And, a lot of times, you know, especially starting out, you're green. You know, when you're green, you're new. So, you know, you can get lost sometimes in that ring real quick, you know, or you can get hurt real bad. But up to the grace of God, that first match, you know, it was a real learning experience, you know, and things I could have did better and other things that, you know, I had to work on. So, but your head start, your brain, you know, you're thinking so much, you're trying to figure out what move goes next. And that takes, you know, it takes time, the psychology in the ring, that's for sure. That's for sure. So. Were, were there any guys uh, in the locker room, uh, veterans uh, and, and the like, that would be uh, giving advice, or would, did you approach anybody about any your, your matches and how you worked? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, on the road, I mean, when I started in this business, the people I probably traveled with the most, honestly, was probably anywhere from Sean Waltman. Sean Waltman was a 16-year-old kid living up here, and I was like 21 at the time. You know, so we, me and Sean and Adnan, Adnan El Casey, the Sheik, um, Jim Rasky, Baron Von Rasky was with quite a bit. 
I'd be on the road sometimes with Jim Brunzel. You know, all those guys would help. Here I was on the road with a lot, and those guys would take the time to watch my match and tell me, you know, what I did good and what I needed to work on. So, I mean, I had tremendous help from, you know, world-renowned wrestlers, world-renowned wrestlers that would, you know, take the time and watch and try to help me and improve. So, yeah, and it was a lot of neat people, you know. They were real cool people to hang out with. Yeah, that must have been some interesting road trips and, and some good times, aside from just getting the wisdom, just the, the hanging out, because a lot of uh, pro wrestlers love to share uh, th- those days uh, of getting into a car and hitting up a couple of spot shows. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, honestly, being in the locker room and on the road with these guys driving, was that was the most fun, just being with them, you know? The show was kind of the, you know what I mean, the cherry on the on the, on the the ice cream, but... It was, I mean, there was, I mean, these were everyday guys that, you know, I grew up watching a lot of them that I was traveling with, you know, and it was so fun because there was, a lot of them were funny guys with funny stories, you know, and just uh, everyday guys, you know, and probably my first six months, I mean, working on shows, I was in awe, you know, I was a, yeah, like a fan. So, but they were so helpful to me and, you know, I still have lifelong friendships with some of them, you know. When did you start to kind of feel a little bit more comfortable in, in, in knowing that, you know, you guys are you guys are peers, you know, some of these guys, these people that you grew up and admired? Did you find that? When did you find that comfort zone where you can chat and it just became you say, were one of the boys? I'm going to say probably after around give or take the first year, you know, because I had been around a little bit, had traveled quite a bit, had met these guys, had worked in the ring with some of these guys you know, had worked out with these guys, had went out to eat with these guys, you know, who had went to the, you know, who had went to the bar with these guys and had a few beverages to get to know them. They got to know me. I got to know them, you know. Um, so I would say probably around the first year, you know. I um, I always tried to stay very humble at first, especially being new, you know what I mean, because they could do a lot more for me than I could do for them. And So, I mean, I think around the first year probably it was, then it was, you know, then it was probably a little bit more, a lot more comfortable for me. A company that uh, I'm very familiar with and, and some listeners up here are familiar with, aside from being the, you know, Minnesota being the AWA's uh, main stomping grounds, was a company that was put together a promotion in Minneapolis based and uh, that you had worked a lot with was Pro Wrestling America and uh, with Eddie Sharkey, uh, of course, uh, the owner. Talk about how you got into Pro Wrestling America and uh, meeting up with Eddie Sharkey, who, uh, like Vern, was uh, another very interesting and important character in the story of pro wrestling uh, in Minnesota. You ain't a kid in there. Eddie Sharkey's one in a million, that's for sure. Um, I had, you know, because I had lived in the cities now, because I that's where I had trained, well, one of the first places you go, Brad said, you know, on independent to get work in the ring was Eddie Sharkey. Now, if you know Eddie Sharkey, you know, Eddie Sharkey has trained the Road Warriors. He's cha- He trained Rick Rude. He trained Barry Dorso, who Barry Dorso is. is he's, you know, he was smashed at demolition, and he was a blacktop bully. He's trained Scott Simpson. You know what I mean? Um, Scott Simpson was, you know, Nikita Koloff. Yep. You know? I mean, he trained uh, 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 numerous tough guys. I mean, you know, like I said, probably the Road Warriors are the legend team, you know. But Eddie had shows. You know, he, he ran a small promotion around the Midwest. You know, he'd have a, few, a lot of times he'd have a few shows a week. So, I mean, I was uh, when I first started, like I said, I was probably, uh, I worked for Eddie the most. Probably it was me, Sean Waltman, probably Jerry Lynn, uh, Charlie Norris, a big native wrestler from Red Lake, um, you know, and I think Charlie actually was the champ for a number of years. And then he'd have, usually he'd get have like a couple, you know, big names, you know, that were on a show, like give or take, say, Jim Brunzel or Kenny Patera or Baron Von Raschke or Tom Zink or somebody like that, you know, in the main event. But, I mean, Eddie, that's what he did. He ran a small show. Uh, you know, uh, affordable, good show, you know, in the small towns all over Minnesota, North Dakota, Iowa, Nebraska, you know, Wisconsin. And then uh, we're going to have some shows in Winnipeg, too, working for what, Tony Condello. But, yeah, I mean, if you were going to work in the cities, it, it was Eddie Sharkey because he had, the, you know, the most shows with the most work. And, and uh, 
But yeah, he had trained a lot of people, Eddie. Eddie was a character, that's for sure. He usually did the ref, and Eddie was doing the ref all the time. So that's yeah. what that's what I can remember from Eddie Sharkey was uh, going to a pro wrestling America show. It was in 1987. I can remember this. It was in the fall. It was uh, Game Six of the World Series because the Twins were playing, of course. And uh, we got to the show in Thieferber Falls at the old hockey arena. And uh, we got there, and the ring wasn't there. Apparently, it, it, about an hour, hour and a half later, the guys came. I think it was Tom Burton who who set up the ring uh, for this show. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, I can remember I, these names, but will come back to you here, or come back to me. And, and I know you'll remember and love. We had we had Johnny Love, we had Skip Luther, we had uh, the Outpatient, we had Tom Zink was there, Lethal Larry Cameron. Uh, who else did we have? Uh, Derek Dukes. And boy, what a show that was. And uh, yeah, that's what I can remember from that. And Eddie was the, the ref. But uh, we could talk about some of those guys. I mean, you definitely uh, worked with many of them. Well, I tell you, I had more respect, I mean, for, for Larry Cameron. Larry was Larry was about business, and he was very serious. And a lot of people, he, he, was, a, he was a loner, too. But if he liked you, we used to go to the gym and work out together. So I was very, uh, very thankful Larry liked me. But this guy was a tough guy, and it's just, I mean, if you know, Larry passed away when he was wrestling in Germany. And uh, it was real sad because I really liked him, and he was a tough guy, a legit tough guy. Derek Dukes, great guy, great guy in the ring, could work in the ring. Tom Sink, a real good guy working in the ring. Johnny Love was a, they were all good guys you mentioned, you know. Uh, different style, some of them, but, you know, they could perform, that's for sure. You know, that's for that's for sure. So, and I can remember it was the, the opening match was was Skip Luther against Johnny Love. <laughs> I, I would bet that's probably probably when they when they almost probably both started around there because I didn't start till 1980. I believe it was 1989. I believe I started, so that was before my time. So, but yeah, those guys were around when I when I started, especially Johnny Love. You know. And then Johnny owned a gym for a while. I used to work at his gym he had in Minneapolis. So real, real good guy. So, um, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about Jerry Lynn. You, you, you mentioned him a lot because uh, right around your run, that's when Jerry and uh, Sean Waltman were tearing it up at such big uh, PWA venues like George's and Fridley. Yep, yep. Um, I mean, they had some Jerry, – Jerry and Sean had some phenomenal matches. I mean, I probably wrestled at <laughs> George's and Friendly. Oh man, a lot. I'm gonna say a lot in that few years I wrestled. I mean, a lot. And I mean, Jerry and and Sean's matches, they were main event anywhere in the world. I mean, these guys, we were making very little money there, but yet, I mean, they their work in the ring was just. I mean, it was phenomenal. I mean, main event times three. You know, they had phenomenal, phenomenal matches. And, uh, you know, Jerry and Sean worked many times together. I mean, I don't even know how to emphasize it, but they, they were phenomenal matches. I mean, they would go for 45 minutes, and some of the stuff they did, I have no idea how they did it, you know. They'd be come out of that ring bloody and cut up and every other thing. But, you know, and the crazy thing is they do that two or three times a week working with each other for, that, for a period of time. You know, the same match working just as hard, no matter where it was. But it was a main event match anywhere you went. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it it wasn't that much longer that uh, they were down in Dallas doing uh, their thing at the old Sportatorium for Global and being on ESPN, which basically propelled Sean uh, up to the WWF. Yeah, Sean got his break, you know, and then he, um, he just was at the right place at the right time, and Vince wanted to do something with them, and... I re- if I remember right, I thought, you know, he went in there as the, what, one, two, three kid or whatever for New York or for Vince, and they put him over like Ted DiBiase and somebody else. And, I mean, the guy, he was so phenomenal in the ring, and yet he was so, ph- his buying, the business, I mean, that's all he lived for. So he understood the business outside of the ring, too, you know, and the psychology of it and how it worked and everything. I mean, I know he's had some issues in his life, but... I mean, he is he is just one of the brilliant minds that was around for a long time. You know, never, he wasn't very big, but he just knew how to do what he had, 
with what he had to do with his body size, he knew, you know, what to do. And, uh, I mean, he was phenomenal, his high-flying activity. Him and Jerry Lynn. I mean, Jerry Lynn was just as good a worker, you know, just oh. as good a worker. So... I mean, what a wonderful, I mean, for two guys to, I mean, it took, Jerry, a couple of years, uh, a few more years than it did for Sean to really take the national spotlight the way uh, Jerry did with in ECW. But again, their matches in Dallas, I bet those matches were, they were great, but I bet there was even better stuff up there uh, in Fridley and other uh, surrounding communities because the way they upped the ante in those days, man, it was, it was really some good high-flying stuff that kind of ended up becoming the norm in, in certain layers of professional wrestling. George's and Fridley was a was a monthly show, and I mean that place was packed. It was packed to go. It was a small area, but it was an exciting area. It was a, a lot of people there. You know that fit. I mean, there was you couldn't move. It was shoulder to shoulder. You know, you had to get out into the ring there by security. They because otherwise there's no way there was even an aisle to walk in the walk in there. So I mean, it uh, that place developed a lot of people. You know. And it made them who they are just doing those matches there at the, I mean, you know. So, yeah, that's a neat, I hadn't heard of George's for a long time, but yeah, you're right there. Was there ever any other venues that come to mind when you think of that had that had that feel in, 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 the, in the loop where you worked for, for uh, Sharky? Well, you know, we went to Des Moines, Iowa quite a bit, and it was a small, it was a small auditorium, but it was really, and I forgot what it was called, but it was packed all the time. You know, it probably only fit, and I'm guessing here probably, I don't know, five six hundred people, but it would be packed, and it would be, you know, and it was and it was crazy because, you know, they just they just got into the show so much. I mean, in a venue like that, you know what I mean? When I now, you know, when I went to Japan and worked in Japan, that was a little bit different. A lot more people, a lot bigger auditoriums, you know, and they were a lot. But the Japanese fans are a lot more smarter to, you know, to the business. You know, they like little bit more actual wrestling and holes back then when I was doing it, you know, so, and they like bigger guys, but probably the place in, in Iowa reminds me a lot because it was a monthly show for a long time and there, it was packed and it was, you know, the wrestling fans really got into it there, you know. This is Wrestling Memories Then and Now. I'm Glenn Broggett, and my guest is Randy Gust. You can, he's also known as The Judge, Randy Gusto, Randall Gust. We're kind of uh, sharing memories, uh, some of Randy's memories of working in the Minnesota Independence in the late 1980s and 90s. And uh, I, it's kind of fun because I could just throw a name out there from, from the era that you did work, and you always seem to have some, some great stuff to, to mention whenever I mention now it's kind of like either you you got you either you got one little line or you got a little story. Uh, I want to know about a few more guys that uh, were in wrestling that I got to see more in the AWA working enhancements, but ended up having a life on the Minnesota Midwest Indies. Uh, one of which uh, was a man by the name of Red Tyler. Did you ever work with Red? <laughs> Many times on the same show as Red. Yes. Um, wow, that's a blast from the past too. I mean, Red Tyler was very he and he worked for new york as a you know doing a lot of in with uh, you know as as talent enhancement i mean he worked a lot for new york pat patterson which was vince mcmahon's right hand man back then i mean liked red i mean he just did you know actually on some spot shows i think red actually worked some spot shows and they put him over like on tom stone or somebody you know but i mean on tv usually he would do the jobs or that right but he worked for WWF a lot, and Pat Patterson liked them, so they let him keep working, you know what I mean? He'd have a payday every time. So, But Red was, uh, you know, Red was very into working out. Red was very into his diet. Red was, you know, and and and, his, and he had a certain regiment he did every day, and he wasn't going to get thrown off from that regiment, from his diet to working out to everything, certain time of the day. And if you traveled with them, you better expect to stop and eat somewhere, or you better... Uh, up at the gym that's for sure because that's what we did already. so yeah red was a good guy he's uh well yeah <laughs> i've kind of thrown these blasts from the past in your direction here yes you are i mean a lot of these names i haven't heard for so many years it's neat it's really neat well i'm going to throw another one in because this guy was uh, on the card uh, the first one i saw for pro wrestling america here in, in thief river in 1987 
was another guy who was uh, a real. I had an indie. Was a real. Had a real presence in the, the Minneapolis Twin Cities Indies. Tommy Ferrara. <laughs> well, you do know these guys, don't you? Oh yeah. Tommy, let me tell you about Tommy Ferrara. This guy had a story for everything. He could tell a story better than anybody. And when I started in wrestling, I think I was 21, 22 back in 89. Tommy Ferrara back in 1989 was probably 40 years old. And he looked good. Tommy wasn't that big, but he looked good, you know. And, I mean, anytime you went on the road with Tommy or you went on the, uh, in the locker room with Tommy, he would tell, he would tell stories from the past from his life from in wrestling, outside of wrestling. He never had a gray hair. He used to have hair feathered back, dark. You know, he was Italian, and he would uh, he would just sit, and he'd smoke cigarettes, and he'd just sit there and smoke and tell stories before the match. And then on the car, he'd be telling stories. He'd always be laughing. He definitely was not a boring guy to hang around with, and he had plenty of stories from, you know, who he had worked with to basically painting his house outside. You know, he could give you a heck of a story. You know, he was from Northeast Minneapolis. So, uh, yeah, he was a real, real fun guy and a real, real good guy. Another name uh, uh, that was all over AWA and, uh, of course, worked for Sharky was a guy who I thought had probably one of the best drop kicks outside of Jim Brunzel, Ricky Rice. I was going to say, you're not going to say Ricky Rice, are you? Oh, yes, no. he did. <laughs> When you said drop kick, I figured that's who it was if it wasn't Jim Brunzel. You know, Ricky Rice had the run in the AWA and that stuff. Um, I think Ricky could have really made it if he wanted to, but I don't know if Ricky really, how do I say this, had a passion, passion for pro wrestling. He liked doing it every night, but, you know, the travel sometimes, I don't know how much he liked it. Sometimes he would, sometimes he wouldn't. Um, he was very talented. You know, like you said, his drop cock, drop kick was you know it was a top drop kick you know and so i mean but you know then he started just you know more so um just getting out of wrestling where he wasn't traveling so much but i mean when he was around ricky you know he used to have a gimmick called the prophet and that was a pretty good gimmick so but um yeah i don't know what ricky's doing now it'd be interesting to know but yeah Here's one that's, uh, guys, it's kind of become a mystery since he left the business. And he was, uh, of course, a part of Pro Wrestling America. He was in the NWA and the AWA for a while. Uh, was Tijo Khan. Tijo was a good guy, man. He was very quiet, but he was always very, I mean, he was one of the nicest guys there was. I mean, he had a phenomenal build, you know. and a, I mean, he was just a great guy. Very, very easy to talk to. He didn't say a lot, but he was just—he was very friendly, though. When he'd come in the locker room, he'd smile, shake everybody's hand, see how we're doing, and maybe sit down and talk to you for a while. But yeah, I think Tito maybe, if he would have wanted, could have went farther because he had the look. You know, he had the look, the build, and that stuff, and he was such a good guy. So yeah. Yeah, and he uh, he came off the shoot pretty strong. I mean, he was uh, you know not barely into his career when he was in the the, the Body Slam movie. That's right. That's right. Um, Tijo, I think, if I remember right, I mean, I think he was going to, you know, I think he went down south for a while and maybe he got soured a little bit for a while with wrestling, you know, all the outside politics you got to deal with. But, you know, he uh, he had the look and he had the, and actually, me and him were actually, this is just a little tidbit for me. I was in a movie with, with Matthew Modine and Marissa Tomei. It was called Equinox. I was a bad guy on a bus, and I had a speaking part, and it's actually on there. But Tito was in that movie, I believe, too, where we did the tapings on it. So, so I got to know him a little bit better there, too. Real good guy. But yeah, another gentleman, uh, and you mentioned him earlier, and he he's a, a tried and true a legend in the business. Uh, if he wasn't uh, going by his other moniker of Billy White Wolf, we knew him in AWA country, and you got to know him a little bit more uh, in the ring and outside of it. I'm talking about Cheek Adnan El Casey. Man, after after reading his story and following him through all these years, oh, man, what an interesting fella. Adnan, I'm going to tell you, Adnan El Casey was probably one of the cheapest guys there was if you ever traveled with him. But he was a nice guy. He was very well-spoken, soft-spoken. Very smart man, you know. 
he was he was from Baghdad, Iraq. You know, I mean, he was from Iraq, and I mean, but he was usually very quiet in the car. And like I said, if you went anywhere, he wasn't going to pay for nothing. That's for sure. But he was still a good guy. But I mean, yeah, I was on the road a lot with it because Adnan was working. Him and Eddie Sharkey, you know, were good friends. You know, him and Eddie would work out all the time together at a at a gym in Bloomington, Minnesota, together. So they were using Adnan all the time on the shows. You know, most of the time as a manager, but. Yeah, he was, uh, there's only one ad on, and then he had a, you know, he was out of it for a while, or doing small shows, and then he got that, you know, that short run with New York again with uh, him and Slaughter and Hogan back in the day, so now I believe, I believe someone, he he moved to Hawaii, I believe. He always had a place there, but I heard he lives there year-round now, so... It's a nice way to end, uh, it, you know, into the latter stages of life to have a little place. And uh, it seems like if Adnan was getting all these things for free, he must have been uh, saving up a nice nest egg. Yes, he was. He was. You know, he'd always like, you know, back in the day when Vern Gagne, he'd always, Adnan would be screaming, Vern Gagne, I got a big surprise for you. You know, he'd always be saying that joking in the locker room or whatever. And, uh, but yeah, he was, uh, he was a character, a real nice man. I mean, Adnan loved to be out in the sun. Say we were on a road show and we had nothing going on for a few hours, he'd just sit out in the parking lot on a chair with his shirt off and shorts and just, I mean, he was as dark as they came. He loved the sun. You know, so Hawaii, that's a great place for him. Mm -hmm. You know? You know, and uh, speaking of legends, another guy that did work uh, around for Eddie uh, on some shows was, was Baron Von Raschke. Oh, well, Jim Raschke was as good a guy as there was. Jim Rask, if you ever talked to him, you could hardly hear him. He was so well, he was so soft-spoken, you know. He was so soft-spoken, but he was one of the mi- nicest, genuine people there was. You know, he was a very, he was big into his family, you know, his kids. He had a daughter and a son, and, uh, you know, that was his top priority. But anytime you had, had any questions for him or that, he was a patient man. He was a kind man. I mean... He still is. I mean, he's still alive. So, I mean, but Jim Rasky, I mean, I believe he was from Omaha, Nebraska. Great football player for the Cornhuskers and that. And, I mean, that guy had a long, long run, that's for sure, mm-hmm. and was as nice as they came. That's mm-hmm. for sure, That as nice as they came. You know, you had some good uh, good moments in your pro wrestling career. I mean, you got to work with guys like like Sheik and 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 and, and uh, Rashke, and also with Ken Patera too. And uh, I mean, talk about one of the all time strongmen of, of pro wrestling, and even outside of that, the Olympic uh, strongman himself. He was also uh, known to be quite a character. And you, I've heard in recent interviews, he's still quite a character. Let me put it this way: with Kenny Patera, Kenny Patera is, I mean, is very opinionated. That's probably, I mean, if you look at Kenny Patera, he is one of the strongest men in the business of professional wrestling, was one of the best heels in the 70s. I mean, how he looked and how he worked with the blonde hair and his strength. I mean, I really believe that he was probably one of Vince's and Vince's dad's, one of the top heels back then. The thing that has always stopped Kenny Patera is Kenny is opinionated and doesn't care who he offends. That's just Kenny, you know. Otherwise, I mean, you can't tell me some of those guys in the WWE Hall of Fame should be there before he was because he was a main eventer. I mean, he was one of the few people that Andre the Giant let slam. Andre just didn't let anybody slam him, you know, in Madison Square Garden. that. But he let Kenny. But Kenny is very opinionated. And he will tell you whether you like to hear it or not. Kenny's going to tell you what he thinks, and it ain't always, uh, how do I say it? It ain't always a, a real nice and respectful how he says it. Kenny's going to say what he says, and that's it. And he don't care. Just you know, but he's a very smart man. He had a couple of degrees from Brigham, Univer- Brigham Young University, you know, and he's legit. His strength and everything else, you know. So, yeah, he's an interesting character, Kenny. Did you did you ever get to to work with like Ray Stevens when he came back in very briefly in the early nineties, or was that uh, were you? You know what? I, I was Ray promoted a couple shows in the cities, and I worked for him. But I believe there's like a couple shows that actually Ray worked. I didn't work against him personally, but he worked in a like tag team main events or that down in shows around somewhere around the Twin Cities. But Ray Stevens was as good a guy as there was too. You know, you could sit and have a beer with him and he'd tell you stories from, you know, back in the 60s and everywhere else. 
And, I mean, he was one of the best worker heels there was, a, you know, in the San Francisco area and everywhere. You know, real, real. I mean, he was fun to be around, too. So... We're going to talk a little bit about you. You uh, worked uh, some uh, for for Vern uh, with, with tapings in Rochester. Could you talk about uh, the experience of working for ESP, actually, AWA ESPN? Or yeah, actually, that was the first time I ever worked for Vern. Was doing, you know, I was I was uh, putting over guy. I worked against. Actually, I worked my first two matches against Coquina Maxima, which is uh, which was uh, uh, Yokozuna. What was it? Yokozuna, okay? And then I worked against Tommy Jammer. Those were one of my early, early matches. And, I mean, it was something totally new to me because I was lost, you know what I mean? They, uh, and it was just part of the learning curve, the experience. You know, I mean, I really didn't want to, you know, Brad always told me, don't worry about, who, you know, if the guy, other guy goes over or puts over. Because you got to get your name out there. you got to get in the ring, and you got to get these promoters to know you. So... You know, I mean, as far as being in the locker room and learning, you know, just walking into the ring, that was huge because that did help me down the road with the AWA because I actually worked against, in Grand Forks, actually my hometown, a few months later, I can't remember, I worked against the tank, Texas Hangman in an individual match against one of the Hangmen, and they were nice enough to put me over. You know, there, there was some uh, some uh, screw finish where with the chair, and I, I got put over. And then, a few times, Greg needed somebody in short notice for an AWA spot show, and I would just get in my car and go, you know. And then when I thought, well, maybe I'll start getting some TV being put over, and that's when they shut down. They shut down in, what, 90 or 91, you know. So, but I was actually working for them quite a bit on the road at the end. And then, you know, their deal came to an end. You mentioned the Texas Hangman. Uh, I happen to had uh, have had uh, Mike Moran, uh, aka Mike Richards, aka one of the Hangmen, on, on a, a previous edition of Wrestling Memories, and he had some uh, stories that he shared about working uh, the AWA, uh, the Rochester tapings in in general, and some of that stuff. Uh, now that's starting to see the light of day with the Team Challenge and all of that. I just wish with the AWA, Burn would have maybe changed with times, you know, and not maybe been so cheap with some of the, you know, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the more upper talent, but, you know, Vern was pretty set in his ways, pretty stubborn, and, you know, the programs just seemed to, it wasn't what people wanted to see anymore, you know, and unfortunately, you know, then after being around for 40 years, the, uh, you know, it, it, it had, you know, the business had passed them by, I guess, and uh, that's unfortunate. I'm going to ask you a question now. We're going to go outside of uh, the AWA and the PWA. And uh, I've had uh, a few people on talking about uh, Herb Abrams, UWF. In fact, a guy that helped us arrange this interview, Jonathan Palmblon, Plumbon, is uh, putting together a book uh, project. And I know that he's interviewed you about this. But the the, the show, and I have seen this uh, in rough cut on online on YouTube, is uh, a show that Herb, uh, the UWF have put on a TV taping in Minot. Uh, it was during right around the time of the State Fair at the Minot State University. State Fair, yes. Yes. yes, yes, and you ended up working with Al Burke, Mr. Outrageous. Could you tell us how you ended up uh, and getting on the card here for this UWF sure. uh, taping and what the atmosphere was like leading up to it and the event itself from, from your eyes? Sure. Actually, wh- and... Uh, I had worked with I, I had worked with Al Blake and I worked with Bob Orton, but I heard that nobody's seen that footage. But yeah, I worked two matches and that one was with Bob Orton. But <laughs> initially, I believe, and I'm trying to remember, but I believe I called Herb Abrams and said, you know, because it was from basically I grew up right around Grand Forks, North Dakota, East Grand Forks, Minnesota. So I said I'm from the state. Basically, I see you got a show here. Can I get on it? And he called me back. You know, Herb Abrams was like a real, real small guy. He was a Jewish guy from, I believe he was from New York City. So, but he was running a show. He was based out of Vegas. And I called him and asked if I could get on it. And he got back to me and uh, and uh, said, yeah, he could use me. So, I go to the show. It was on a Saturday. I actually, uh, so I get to, he says, come to my hotel room when you get here and we'll talk. So I get to the hotel in, in Minot, 
And I go to the door, and his room number, I find his room number, and I knock on the door. <clears throat> and Herb starts talking to me through the door. He won't open the door. I'm thinking, well, I'm kind of a, you know, naive kid from North Dakota, Northwest Minnesota, but this guy's talking to me through the door. Yeah, I'll be downstairs at, uh, in this room at a couple hours, and we'll start the TV, or we'll start the interviews. Thinking, well, that's kind of weird, start talking through the door, but okay, whatever. So I go down there. A couple hours later, I finally meet him, you know, face-to-face, you know, the real small guy. Then we go to the uh, locker room. We start to, there's a bunch of matches because it's a TV taping. You know, that my first match, though, was with Bob Orton. You know, that goes okay. Then I work against Al Blake. And then, all right, so the, the, uh, the show's over. So he says, well, come up to my room. Everyone's coming up to my room, and then I'll take care of you, know, pay and everything. So I say, okay. So I go up to his room. And it finally lets us in. A few of the boys are in there. I think, like, Brian Blair was there and a few other people. So he writes me a check, and I can't remember. It was for, like, $250. I was thinking, oh, cool, that's a nice payday for me. So I cashed the check. But the thing is, I guess before that, he keeps going into the bathroom. And I don't know what he's doing. I'm thinking, what the heck? He keeps going in the bathroom about every 10 minutes. Well... What I find out is, like a lot of people, you know, everybody had an issue with some addiction issues. But, you know, talking to him through a door and through, and he's going in and out of the bathroom. I didn't know that. I was still, I didn't really know the business that well on the outside part. But anyway, so I get the check. So I go to cash it. It bounces. So I say, oh, great. My first bounce check. So I call him, leave a message, say, you know, I know if I've, try to be threatening or mean, I'm not going to get nothing. So I just said, uh, Mr. Abrams, this is Randy Gus. I work for you on this Minot North Dakota State Fair show. The check bounce, I was wondering, I said, you know, I played the card. Uh, well, I know sometimes times are tough, but I was wondering, you know, I'd really need the money. I don't have a lot, and I'll be darned. He called me back, said, I'll send you another check, and he did, and it went through. You know, I thought once that bounced, I'd never see it again, but he did, but those are the things I remember about that UWF show in Minot. Yeah, and I, I've watched yeah. uh, some of the stuff on YouTube, and uh, I've seen like there's clips, of course, of Stevie Ray, uh, Steve Ray, the Wild thing, uh, I guess on a four wheeler or something at the state fair, riding around, and then he's out participating and getting spun around in a little ride. And I remember that, and I also I, I had uh, heard from Todd Becker about it too, because uh, he was on the taping as well. Yeah, see, I don't remember any of, I mean, that part of it. I wonder if that was the day before or what was going on or where they had that taping because, I mean, that's, when I got there, it was just in the auditorium at the locker room and the matches were going on, so that other stuff, I guess I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't familiar with, so. I think it was uh, just the day of the show going out to kind of drum up and get a few people out there was kind of a part of that. Sure, sure. Oh, cool. Yeah. Now, you went, uh, you mentioned Japan briefly. Let's uh, talk about how you got over in Japan and, and, and what, you know, what it was like uh, to work in that culture, work with, with, with the workers. You, you, you talked a little bit about it, but let's talk about how you, you made it your way over to, to the Orient. Well, actually, with Japan, for me, a couple things. One is, the first one was, you know, Brad Rangens was a booker for Japan, for, for Masa Saito, for, uh, for New Japan. And actually, I worked for them for I, I worked for them for a tour. Um, basically, the first match working against you know young Japanese talent, and the, you know, and it was really interesting. Uh, they worked real hard, the Japanese, real real hard. It's almost nonstop, and they can put in submission holds real quick, you know. So I mean, working for and that was a major organization. Um, another organization I worked for there was called. It was called, uh, wow, I'm trying to remember. It was a smaller organization in Japan. But actually, I got hooked up through that one, and I went on numerous tours there uh, Was with, by John Layfield, if you know uh, Jonathan Bradshaw. Because John Layfield was trained by Brad Rangins a couple of years after I was. So Layfield hooked me up with uh, this other tour in Japan, and I worked for them numerous times. Bill Irwin was on it. Uh, Rod Price from Texas was on it. Oh, 
you know, it uh, was definitely interesting, the culture there. The people are very respectful. You know, they're very smart, too. They understand what's going on, you know. And usually for them back in the day, say boots, I usually was whistling of some sort. So, uh, but, yeah, actually I was on a tour a few times with John Layfield. He was, always, you know, he actually got me over for the one organization. And then Brad got me over for New Japan and Masa. So, yeah, it was long tours, you know, long days on buses sometimes. But, yeah, the people, the culture was real nice, real nice. Did you ever do any other international uh, tours as far as, or was it just primarily Japan? Well, I went to Sweden for a short time. If you ever remember a guy named Frank Anderson, he was a, he was a world, I don't know if he was world champion, but he was an Olympic Greco wrestler for Sweden. Well, he was trained, him and Brad Rangans knew each other, so I worked uh, just a, it was really in, in and out of, I believe, it, where was it in Sweden? I forgot what it was even. It was a basically a show, and I was in and out, and it was a very small show. Um, so, yeah, my main thing was Japan. Mm-hmm. And as we get close to wrapping up uh, th- this interview, I, I want to know, uh, when did you decide to, uh, when you finally came at that crossroads, It was th- you decided to call it a career, and, and what led you to make that decision to finally really just kind of f- hang up the boots on, on, on pro wrestling? You know, I had been doing it, I promised myself, by the time I started when I was like 21 or so, okay, and I said, I'm going to give myself till I'm 30, you know, and see what happens. Well, I went a little bit, little bit longer, but at that point, as I had went farther along into, you know, it, it had been around seven, eight, nine years or ten years. You know, I mean, if I hadn't got the, you know, the main call from Vince then, and you know, they were pushing other younger people and and everything else, I also realized for me, well, I have to, I have to make a career for myself in my life here. You know what I mean? If wrestling ain't gonna be it. So it was probably back in 1998 or I just decided, you know, I got to make a career or some change. You know, I I have to look at the good things. I met a lot of great people, made a few bucks at it, seen the world somewhat, seen the United States, seen the Midwest all over, up and down many times. I just said, you know what, I've got to make a career for myself because I've seen a lot of wrestlers that were older that had nothing. You know, that had nothing. And I said, you know what? I'm still young where I can have a career. So I decided, you know, when I was in my early 30s, that I'm going to start a career. And with the grace of God, I've been with the Department of Corrections, Stillwater Prison, you know, for a little around 20 years, a little under 20 years, you know. But I knew that down the road, I needed a pension. I needed health insurance. You know, I need to have a paycheck coming in every, you know, a couple of weeks. I needed security. And for me, wrestling wasn't going to do that. And even the guys that have made money at wrestling, you know, Brad Rangans told me once, says, Randy, it don't matter if you make 10000 a week if you're spending 12000 a week. It ain't how much you make, it's how much you save, you know, especially for a lot of the guys that were making money that didn't save it. Well, I never forgot that, and I just said, you know what, I've got to have a career, and uh, it's time to, you know, it's time for me to change. And... Uh, Believe me, I had a lot of fun in the business of pro wrestling. I met a lot of neat people, you know, and seen the world like I had already said. So for me, there was no regrets. Sure, I wish I would have made it bigger, you know, but it is what it is, you know. So I got to look at the good times I had and, and what good came out of it, not the bad, because I could get real resentful, and that's, you know, I'm just not going to live that way. So I needed a career. I made a career. I've been very blessed with my career. Uh, They'll always be a prison, so I've been very, very lucky there. So I'm grateful with my career now working with the Department of Corrections. So that's how I basically left wrestling and went into the real world. And it seems like uh, you made the the wise choice. Was there ever any times where you had those uh, feelings where... Oh, uh, you know, there's a, so-and-so's having an event. Maybe I want to pop in or maybe I can get on the... Did you ever have any, any sort of itch? Or if you did, how long did it take for that itch to kind of just go away? You know what, I'll be true. Since I've, I've been at the prison for... I've actually wrestled three times in the ring. One was actually a show in Thief River Falls. It was back in 2007 at the casino. Um, I think it was 2007 or 2008. It was at the casino. My buddy, Charlie Norris from Red Lake, had it. 
and I actually worked against some younger talent there, you know. And I and my mom was there. My mom passed passed away, but she was there for that show. And she said, Randy, she said, Randy, you've gotten a lot of a lot heavier, a lot slower, and everything else. So I never forgot that. Okay. <laughs> so and then uh, a guy I worked with at at the prison actually owned a bar and he had a couple shows there so and he wanted a wrestling show so i'd actually worked with if you know who tony danucci is and that stuff he todd perry yep. he ran some shows so and i worked with french lake wrestling association and uh so i did those small shows but otherwise you know i've been asked a couple other times to do things but you know i just it was time for me to go you know and let the younger guys have their fun and do their things because you know to make it big it's so so tough you gotta have timing you gotta have everything else go your way you gotta have them like you it's a lot of politics you know and and if you're willing to fight those politics you know then maybe you have a chance but i've seen it i've seen it ruin a lot of guys too and make them bitter so i never felt that way really so i uh when it was time to go it was time to go Back to that Thief River uh, Casino show, I, I remember that because I also remember uh, uh, Greg Valentine was on that uh, event. Actually, that tag team was, if I remember right, I remember at least a couple of them. Yeah, it was Greg Valentine and somebody against Charlie Norris, the big native from Red Lake, and Sean Waltman was on the show. That He flew Sean in. That was the main event. It was nice to see the guys that especially Sean, someone I knew since he's 16 year old. But that's right, Greg Greg Valentine was on it too. And I think who was supposed, someone else was supposed to be on it, no show. It was either Kamala or King Kong Bundy. I can't remember. But yeah. Well, it looks like our time is uh, about running down. I'd love to have you on some time again. Maybe we can get you uh, get you hooked up with uh, one of the guys that you had an opportunity to work with uh, during your career in pro wrestling, and we can kind of have a little conversation, uh, you know, just between you know the three of us, and I can kind of moderate between the two because I think uh, there's a lot more memories in there that that uh, we haven't even uh, scratched the surface on. Well, I tell you what, you brought a lot of back memories just by doing your show here because. You know, I haven't talked about this for so, I mean, um, for for so long that it's really, uh, you know, it, it brings a smile to my face, you know, talking about the guys in the business. Because it's, uh, believe me, pro wrestling, there's no other business than like it, that's for sure, you know. So, yeah, uh, I appreciate you having me on it. I appreciate uh, just uh, reminiscent because uh, it does bring a smile to my face, that's for sure. A big thank you to uh, Randy Gus for being on the program. I'm Glenn Broggett. You've been listening to Rasslin' Memories Then and Now.